This is Novel Marketing, the show for novelists who aren't necessarily fond of marketing, but still want to become best-selling authors. Episode 106. I'm James L. Rubart, but you can call me Jim. I'm Thomas Umstadt, Jr. And in this episode, we're going to talk about book covers, which I would say, Thomas, love to get your input on this, but I would say it's probably the most essential part of marketing. It's the most essential part of anything you do with regard to publicizing your book. Yes? It's it's one of those multipliers that if it equals zero, everything else you do doesn't work. So if you have a bad book cover, it doesn't matter how good your Amazon ads are, doesn't how good your email marketing is, everything else will fail if your book cover is bad. So it is critical in that way. Okay, so we're going to dedicate this episode to talking about what you must do to make your cover a success. That's right. So let's talk a little bit about the purpose or the goal of a book cover. In order to understand how to have an effective book cover, let's take things down to the fundamentals. And like from an existential purpose, why have book covers? Why not just have text on a black background or a white background? Why have a book cover at all? Is this something you studied in philosophy in, in college, Thomas, or it's something you're just throwing out at the moment? So Steve, there's a famous story of Steve Jobs who for years didn't have a couch because he would he was he didn't have a satisfactory answer to what is the purpose of a couch like existentially why do couches exist and since he didn't have a satisfactory answer he didn't have a sofa. Oh, you're in his kidding! House. Oh, I love that. His wife's very uh, patient with him and put up with it. So the the primary function of a book cover is to incite curiosity yes. and to communicate the genre of the book. But ultimately, it's to sell the book. <laughs> so the book cover's purpose is to convince someone to buy the book. Yeah, it's it's kind of like if you look at the first line of a novel. What is the first line of the novel? What's the purpose of the first line of the novel? We hear this again and again and again. It's to hook you into the first paragraph, and then the first paragraph hooks you into the rest of the book. So in the same way that a first line of a novel hooks you in that book cover is the first hook in their mouth to convince them to buy it that's right so uh in the one of the important things to know about book covers is that it's not just art uh, one mistake that authors make is they'll hire an artist to do the book cover and an artist lacks two important skills that make for good book covers and that is graphic design which is the use of topography and other graphic design elements and then finally package design in some ways a book cover is more like a box of Cheerios than it is like the Mona Lisa, right? So the box of Cheerios is designed to get you to, you know, you're walking down the aisle, you see the Cheerios, it convinces you to pull the box off the shelf and put it in your cart. So you might not, you might not frame the, 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 the Cheerios box, but you are going to pick it up and put it in your grocery cart. Yeah. That's right. If you go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, they probably, probably don't have Cheerio boxes on display. Although at the Met, you never know what they're going to feature uh, because it's not art. It's it's something more functional. And while it's hard to say if art is successful or not, you can say if a book cover is successful or not. And you can say if a, a cereal box design is successful. If I see that cereal box and it doesn't convince me to buy the cereal box or it doesn't convince me to buy the book that box has failed as far as i'm yes concerned. yes and let's let's use your analogy thomas it's a cereal box what happens when you pick up that cereal box and look at it what's the next thing you do 
you flip it over to the back. Yeah. Or if it's me, I flip it over to the nutrition facts. <laughs> Nutrients, yeah. So at least you at least you turn, let's call it the spine of the cereal box, like the spine of a book. At least you're looking at that information. It has caused you to go further in. And that's why we are we're emphasizing this so much because one of the things we see often is that's where people skimp on paying the money. They might get a good editor, but they skimp on the cover design. And that is the one area you simply cannot 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 skimp on that's right don't skimp on your cover design and don't skimp on your editing if you don't have the money for those things go get a job make some money and pay for somebody to help you with those things if you want to be professional there's some things you need to spend money on and your cover is one of those things i don't sell covers jim doesn't sell covers we're not trying to make money off you here we're just telling you like it is covers are important. So let's talk about what every cover needs, every book cover. And when we're talking about book cover, we're talking about the complete cover, both the front cover, the spine, and the back cover. Yeah, good point. So Jim, what's the first th first thing that every book needs? Well, this is obvious, but we got to say it anyway, and that is the title of the book and the subtitle. The title needs to be readable. <laughs> Sometimes you'll see these titles that are so cool and so creative and so fancy, but you actually have to really study the title to be able to read it. The other thing that a book has to have is that it has to have a subtitle, obviously. And this is more prevalent in nonfiction than fiction. But a lot of times on a cover, you'll see um, Rooms, James L. Rubart, a novel. And I asked my agent when my first book came out, I said, uh, wow, I've never really noticed this before, but why do we put a novel? Isn't this obvious that it's a novel? Well, it not only, it not always is. Yeah, isn't it a book about interior design? <laughs> yes, interior <laughs> design, exactly. So uh, it, it, when your designer comes back to you and says, yeah, we've got to call it a novel, that's okay. They know what they're doing. That's right. The next thing that every book cover needs is the name of the author. You want to have your name on there and just your name. No PhD, no anything around it. Just keep it clear. And we have had, we've done several episodes on author names and how to have a good one. So if this is your birth, first book, I highly recommend that you spend some time thinking about your author name. Because once you pick one, it's really hard to change. And if you make some mistakes, not that anyone on this podcast has made any mistakes with picking <laughs> their pen name, uh, it could really hurt you down the road. <laughs> so uh, the next thing that every book cover needs is back cover copy. This is the blurb. This is a sentence or two or three that describes your book. Jim, tell us about that. That first line of your back cover copy is just like the cover, just like the first line of your novel. It has to hook them in. Then we go on to the extended blurb, which can be up to anywhere from oh gosh, as, as low as 90 words up to maybe 160, 170 words. These are the words that is going to cause somebody to open up the book if they're standing in a bookstore or say they're online, read a little bit of the book in the sample area. These words are critical because these are the words like a log line for a movie or a TV show. These are the words that are going to draw people in or not. And so this is another critical component of your book and your book cover. That's right. The next thing that you're book cover needs is your author headshot and we've actually done some episodes on headshots as well if you go to the show notes we'll have links to these episodes it's novelmarketing.com slash 106 and uh, in general every book cover needs a headshot there are some exceptions to this and this ties in with the author as well if you feel that your audience that you're writing to it will be biased against you because of who you are how you look you may want to keep the headshot off 
this maybe affects one or two percent of authors. The most common instance of this is um, male authors who write for romance readers. Um, there's a concern amongst uh, authors that you know women don't want to read romance books written by men, and so oftentimes men who write for a romance audience won't put their headshot on the book and they won't have their name. They'll have initials. Uh, the same goes is true, actually, for women writing for fantasy. There was a belief that you know fantasy readers didn't want to read a fantasy book written by women. This is why J.K. Rowling is J.K. Rowling. She didn't put her name. She put her initials so that her gender was a bit obscure. Now, she just happened to be like the most successful novelist you know, in terms of money, maybe ever, and I think she's done a little bit to dispel the whole, like, oh, fantasy writers don't want to read books written by women. It's like, um, false. <laughs> so uh, I don't think that in general this is a good idea. I think, uh, or to take it off, I think in general you want to have your headshot. You want to have a good headshot. It'll, it makes you more relatable. It makes people more likely to read the book. The next thing you want to have there is the author bio. Now we've done, we've, we've actually done an episode on author bios as well. This is not the part, the place to put your big, long extended bio or even your medium bio. A bio on a book cover and even inside the book is going to be more brief. So you're going to use your short bio, but you need to have your bio on there. People, like Thomas said, they want to see you. They want to know a little bit about you. And that's what the author bio is going to do for you. Okay, the next pieces are pieces that might get left off if you're self-publishing your book. So, so far we've been hitting things that most people include. But uh, the next thing is your ISBN number. You want to list the actual ISBN number of the book. And you want to use that ISBN number to generate a barcode. There are some websites online that will do this for you for free. There are also websites that will generate the exact same barcode for you for a fee. So I'll let you decide whether you want to do it for free <laughs> or pay the fee. Um, from the computer scanning perspective, there's no difference between the scanned, uh, you know, the one generated for free and the one uh, generated from the website. And um, you may be like, oh, well, I don't really want a barcode on my book, and I don't want to pay for an ISBN number. These are This is one of those things that people subconsciously notice if it's not there. So when you flip over a book on the back, often it's the missing elements that make it feel self-published. If it's just a photo of the, bio, of the author and a bio and a bunch of text, that's going to feel self-published. Now, your typical reader is not going to tell you why it feels self-published, but one of the things that makes it look self-published is the lack of a barcode and an ISBN number. Another thing that is subconscious, but people will notice it subconsciously and it will be an irritant to them, if, is if you don't have the publisher. You might say, well, I'm the publisher. I don't need to have a publisher on there. I don't need to create a name and, and that kind of thing. Actually, you do. Like Thomas just said, if somebody is viewing that, they might not know why it bothers them, but it'll bother them. Why? Because they've grown up all their life seeing the publishing house on the book cover. Yeah, on the, it's, it's typically in the bottom left corner of the back cover copy. And here's the deal. If you're independently publishing... All you have to do is go to your local county courthouse and get an, what's called in some states an assumed name, and in other states it's called doing business as or a DBA. Uh, in Texas, this costs, I think, $20, maybe $23 paid in cash, and you are now a business. You have a business name. This is the easiest, cheapest way to have a company name. And then you go get some 2D icon and put it as the logo. Because here's the thing. Publishing houses, almost without exception, have terrible logos. So you don't have to have a good logo to look like a real publishing house. You just have to have something. <laughs> Remember, people don't care about the publisher. They just expect to see it on the back cover of the book. And so if you want to look 
look professional, this is something you need to include on your back cover of your book cover. The next item you need to have on your cover is price. Again, that seems like that's fairly obvious, but let's talk a little bit about that. If your price is way lower or way higher, that's going to say something about you as well. There was a company called Tate Publishing, kind of a scam uh, vanity press for years, and they would charge the authors so much money for the books, the authors would have to price them at like $19.99 for a paperback. Well, nobody's used to paying that, and so it's just out of whack in the consumer's mind. The opposite is true as well. If you price your book at $8.99 and everyone else in trade paper is uh, selling it for $14.99 or $15.99, you're going to look out of whack. Now, you can certainly discount off of that price, but you want that starting price to be very similar to what else is going on in the market. Yeah, this is the price that Amazon is going to put a line through and then charge a lower price. See, you can never (laughs) charge more than the price that you put on the back of the book. You'll charge this price in only rare instances. If you're doing a book signing or you're speaking, you're signing books in the back of the room, people are expecting to pay list price. Uh, Sometimes at some bookstores, people are expecting to pay list price. Most of the time, people are expecting to pay less. A good rule of thumb is find the best-selling book in your category that has the same size book that you have. Softback and same number of inches on each side or millimeters if you're in Europe and just copy their price and then copy their price for the Canadian price. (laughs) So in the U.S., we have the prices in both U.S. and Canada, which I don't fully understand why that is, like why it's a fixed exchange rate when the actual exchange rate between U.S. dollars and Canadian dollars like changes like every hour. Uh, But on the back of the book, it's unchanged for years. And it's like, okay, well, whatever. Uh, But again, that's something people are expecting to look at. And for those of you listening in other countries, like if you're in the UK, you may want to include the pound and the euro. Uh, Just do whatever is the norm for books in your country. And it's very easy. Just go to a bookstore, flip it over to the back, and see which currencies are listed. And then you want to list the currency. And this goes immediately above the barcode. So you have the barcode, and then right above the barcode is the price. One more thing I want to say on price, Thomas, is when people are signing at the back of the room or say they're at a conference or they're speaking somewhere, I often see authors put the little sticker because they might reduce it by a dollar or something to incentivize people, and they put it on the front of the book. And there's this principle in Sales 101 that says, well, my product doesn't cost you anything until you see the value in it. And there's a reason... (laughs) that publishers put the price on the back because they want to entice you with that cover. They want to entice you to look at the back cover copy before they ever talk to you about price. And so you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot if you put that sticker. And I see people doing this at conferences all the time. Don't put your sticker on the front. Put it on the back so at least they're going to turn it over and get a glance at that back cover copy before they see what you're charging. Speaking of stickers, that leads us to the ninth thing you should put on your book cover. Now, this one is optional. Uh, You may not be eligible for this one yet, but that is some sort of trust badge, some sort of third-party indication that this book is amazing. So this could be an award that the book has won or a bestseller status or the number of copies in print. These are the most common forms of trust badges. So you you pick just one. You don't put all three. That's a very... um, 
classless thing to do. So if you're a New York Times bestseller, you want to put a sticker on every book cover that says New York Times bestseller. In fact, publishers will do this. They'll go, they'll have somebody in the warehouse sticker all the copies of the book once it hits the New York Times bestseller list. And then when they print another run, if they do another print run, they'll have that sticker printed onto the book cover. And so you, it's kind of cool. Sometimes you get the stickered version. It's like you got the very first printing of the book before it hit the New York Times bestseller list. Yeah, I was fortunate enough to just win the Carol Award, ACFW Carol Award Book of the Year for my novel, The Long Journey to Jake Palmer, in the spec category. And I had my web guy put a little sticker on there that says, you know, talks about that. Suddenly that gives that book more legitimacy. Yeah, now numbers of copies in print, uh, there's some debate as to how many copies in print you want to put. Uh, in general, people don't understand what big numbers are and what a lot of copies in print means. So, so there is an argument that any number here uh, is going to look impressive, although I don't know if that's quite true. So I wouldn't put like 500 <laughs> copies in print. That's not going to look good it's unless it's a limited run. So if you only print 500 copies and once the 500 copies are done, uh, then and each copy is numbered. So like this is copy 45 out of 500. Well, that totally changes uh, the narrative. Generally speaking, you want to wait until you hit at least 20,000 copies before you use that as your trust badge. Uh, another v- a variant of this is numbers of copies sold. Uh, so uh, this is a little bit trickier because it's, sometimes it's hard to know exactly how many copies you have sold. Because uh, just because they've been printed doesn't mean they've sold all the way through the distribution network. But uh, those are the trust badges. Once you can put one on your book, it will help you sell more copies. All right, the 10th thing to include on your book cover is shelving instructions. This is very, very commonly left off of the back uh, of a book by independent authors. And it's one of those things that just makes it look a little bit more uh, self-published. And it's because since they're not thinking, oh, bookstores are going to sell my book, they're not thinking about helping those bookstore employees with shelving instructions. So if you look, if you take a traditionally published book, you look at the barcode and you look right above the price, right above that is going to be the genre of the book and often the subgenre and the subgenre again. So it'll be fiction, fantasy, urban fantasy. And the reason for this is so that the minimum wage high school student who works at the bookstore can pick up the book, look on the back, and know what shelf to put it on. Uh, This is also (laughs) helpful, though, for people who have their own libraries of print books. Um, My mom has probably 1,000, 2,000 books in her library. She's got a whole room of her house dedicated to books. And this is very helpful for her. And they're all categorized by category. So if you want to make people like my mom happy, put your shelving instructions, even if you have no intention of being in a traditional bookstore. It doesn't cost you anything to put this on the back, and it just makes the book a little bit more friendly and a little bit more professional. The final thing we want to talk about is endorsements. Now, do endorsements work? Yes, they work, and they don't work. And by that, I mean there's a certain part of the population that has a personality makeup that if somebody famous likes the book, that influences them to buy the book. That's why celebrities do product endorsements on TV and radio. But there's 75% of the population that it eh, just doesn't mean that much to them. So if you want to have a fun experiment, go to your experiment, go to your Facebook page and ask your friends, 
are you influenced by endorsements or not? And you'll see how some of them go, oh my gosh, yes. And some of them go, that doesn't matter to me at all. So when you're considering endorsements, yes, I think endorsements are wonderful. And I've gotten some really nice endorsements over the years, but, but they're not the end all. So don't kill yourself trying to get them. Although I will say one thing about endorsements. Sometimes if you look at the cover of a book and there's a little endorsement down at the bottom, if you took that endorsement off, it would almost look incomplete. So in some cases, that book cover is being designed in such a way that that little endorsement or that little blurb at the bottom actually makes the design look more professional. Now, the one key with understanding endorsements is to realize that endorsements work on people who respect the person doing the endorsement. So if I've not heard of the person who's endorsed your book, that endorsement has no effect on me, positive or negative. Now, there was a time in my life where if Seth Godin endorsed a book, if I saw his blurb on the cover, I would buy it, no questions asked, because I, was, I had such a high respect for Seth Godin and wanted to read everything he was reading so much that I was like, shut up and take my money. If Seth Godin likes it, that's good enough for me. <laughs> We're good and, to go. Yeah, and there's some novelists that are like that. I like, I'm like, I've read every one of their novels. I wish they were writing novels faster, and if they've blurbed someone else's book, I'm more willing to take a flyer on it because... I would want to, I'm hoping that it's similar in style to that novelist who I have already heard of. Uh, so that's what you're hoping to get with your endorsements. And if you have a bunch of kind of mediocre endorsements, you can put those in your book. You can put them in the first few pages. That's great. And for some people, that may help win them over, and it doesn't cost too much. But in general, a good book cover is simple. And on that line, we have a couple of final pro tips. So we've talked to you about what every book cover uh, needs to look legit. Now let's talk about some key pro tips to have it really like pop in the sense of like being a good cover, not just like this is a passable cover that has all of the required elements. Um, so the first thing is to keep the potential for a series in mind. So if you're planning to write sequels to this book, you want uh, room in terms of design elements, especially along the spine, so that these books will look good on the shelf. If they don't look good next to each other, it's going to really hurt your bookstore sales, and it's going to make it less likely that people are going to keep your book on their shelf if the series doesn't match itself. And yes, I have seen this done, and it makes me sad. <laughs> um, the, other, the other thing that's very important is that remember... All of your ebook sales and many of your print sales are going to be online sales, which means people are not seeing your big, beautiful book cover. They are seeing a one-inch tall version of your book cover. Yeah, and so what happens is a lot of times you'll say, uh, come study my book cover, and you'll blow it up as big as you can on your computer screen. No, bigger. I want to see it bigger. Oh, it's so beautiful. And you don't take the time to look at it at one inch and see how that looks. Yes, we want it to look wonderful and when it's big and blown up, but we also want it to look wonderful when it's very small because that might be the only impression. And now you're going to start to know the, notice this, say, for example, if you're, you're on Goodreads, where all these books that your friends are reading come in and some of them you look at that one inch uh book cover in your email and you go oh my gosh it looks great and the other it's like you can't even make out what's going on in any way shape or form so yes blow it up and look at it but also look at it in that very tiny size as well that's right uh, because if it looks good small it's going to look good big and 
it will look good from across the room. So this is the other advantage of keeping that design simple is that if you are facing out from the shelf or you're on a table in a bookstore, if it looks good small and someone's far away, it's small in their field of view and they can still see the title and you have a chance of catching their attention, inciting their curiosity, all the things we talked about at the top of the book. Man, if you make someone curious and you can get them to walk across the room, they're already that much closer to buying uh, your book. Uh, And the principle here is, and this is similar to the principle with good writing, actually. It's good design, good book cover design. It's not adding until you can add no more. It is subtracting until you can subtract no more. The simpler you keep the cover, the more effective it will be all things being equal, especially in the world of covers on, you know, as thumbnails on websites. You keep that design as simple as possible. Take out as many elements as you can, design elements. You don't, you know something we didn't have on this list? A picture. You can have a perfectly effective book cover with no picture whatsoever. You just have a typographical treatment of your book. In fact, a lot of traditionally published best-selling books have no image at all. They just have a typographical treatment by a designer who knows how to speak paragraphs with fonts. <laughs> and so don't just be like, oh, I like Comic Sans. I'm going to use this. No, you need to understand. You need to have somebody on your team who understands fonts. And so you don't need an image. You don't need a logo on your book cover, although you could. And Also, your genre may affect that. Some genres tend to have a certain style, and you want to play to that style. You want to play to that genre like we talked about at the beginning. Part of the goal is to communicate the genre. So you don't want to be too revolutionary or too innovative. The final thing is to keep the focus on your reader. That's who you're designing for. You're not designing for yourself. I, my, my friend Peter, I'm doing some consulting with him and we were consulting on some book covers that he'd designed and he showed me a couple of designs and I said, that one, Peter, that one would appeal to me, but who's your target audience? Well, it's millennials. And I said, okay, see the one on the left? That's the one they're going to love. And I said, let's just do a Facebook test and just ask. Uh, and he came back a few days later and said, oh, my gosh, you were right. This is the one the millennials love. It's like, yeah, that's who that's who your book is targeted towards. That's who the cover has to please, not, not you and me. So, again, keep that in mind. You are after the reader's approval, not your own. And one clever way of testing what readers think of your book cover is to buy Facebook ads targeting your demographic that reads your book with the different book covers and see which cover gets the most clicks. Because it was very, sometimes people will say they like a certain cover, but they'll actually be more likely to click on a different cover. And the best way to find that out, you do the exact same ad, and the only thing that's different is the book cover, and you just let the Facebook algorithm show it to lots of people and see which one gets clicked on more likely. So you can actually scientifically know which cover is superior uh, with this method. All right, our sponsor today was going to be the Rubart Writing Academy, but there are no more tickets for sale. So congratulations, Jim, on that. Uh, there is yeah. going to be another one sometime next year. Uh, do we? Do you have a date yet for the next one? Yeah, we actually we actually decided. I talked to Taylor, and we decided we are definitely doing it again, and um, it's going to be the first weekend in May of 2018. So we're really excited about that. We will share it with y'all first here on the podcast, uh, and you'll want to get those tickets quickly before they are all gone. So, Jim, congratulations on that. Uh, and although it does mean you wasted your sponsorship slot on the show, <laughs> <laughs> I did no. <laughs> so, but that's okay. We'll we'll um, we'll we, we'll, and we'll try to do a, a better job of, with our podcast listeners of giving y'all early dibs uh, on upcoming events. 
You've been listening to the Novel Marketing Podcast with Thomas Umstead Jr. and James L. Rubart, giving you novel marketing ideas on how to promote yourself and your writing online, offline, and everywhere in between. Thanks for listening.